1: Cross-dressing in the USA and in the UK. Political cross-dressing, that is. And that's not for whom the letters are coming in. They're coming in against Rishi Sunak. That's right, the 1922 committee, that oddly named Assemblée of Conservative Men in Grey Suits, are getting busy counting the mail all over again. A challenge for Rishi Sunak is incoming, and the war drags on, but increasingly to the disadvantage of NATO. They have to piss or get off the pot, as we say in Glasgow, because if NATO doesn't enter this war soon, it's going to be all over by Christmas, and if they enter, it's all over for all of us, long before the festivities. All that and A look at the workings of the political systems on both sides of the Atlantic. How the right became the left and the left became the right and actually none of it means anything anymore. It's going to be a bumpy night so fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows.
2: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
1: I told my editor I was going to be concentrating on the issue of cross-dressing, but he misunderstood, so he's dug out all kinds of pictures of Eddie Izzard and the rest. That's not the cross-dressing I want to talk about. I want to talk about the truly extraordinary thing, and bear in mind that I have been in politics for more than 50 years. More than 50 years. And I have never known or even imagined in my wildest dreams that this current situation on the political spectrum would come to pass. Let's take the war. The only people, only people, opposing the war in Ukraine and the endless shoveling of tens of billions of dollars into the most corrupt regime in Europe are the people on the right of the American political spectrum at least as far as the official political class is concerned uh, the uh, the uh, Dr. Cornell West running for the Green Party is of course totally outstanding on this subject and rightly identifying the existence of NATO as a major part of our problems and promising to wind it up if he, in the unlikely event, becomes president. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Ditto. But I'm talking about in the Senate, in the House of Representatives and, of course, in the inner councils of the White House, the cross-dressing is complete. Once upon a time, in my lifetime, in the Vietnam War, for example... It was the left that were demanding an end to the war and the right that were demanding more and more and more dead American soldiers and endless amounts of money for a losing cause, reinforcing failure, throwing good money after bad. That situation has now completely reversed. The left in American politics, as defined as the mainstream Democratic Party, which is what the media refer to when they talk about the left and the progressive side of politics, is 100% behind Joe Biden and Antony Blinken and Volodymyr Zelensky and the war machine, the military-industrial complex, uh, the big arms companies, and I presume the top military brass. Although when they retire, like Colonel Douglas McGregor, you oftentimes get a glimpse at what the real opinions of the top military brass are. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, these other women and men in the so-called squad are 100% behind the war. And worse, actually, even than that, they are a hundred percent behind more and more and more censorship. I refer to my earlier point in my lifetime, it was the left that demanded an end to censorship. The right that demanded ever more censorship. Why are you putting Galloway on the television, they would say, not 20 years ago, in the context of the Iraq war. Why are you giving Galloway all this airtime to pollute the airwaves with his anti-war messages and also eloquently to, if I say so, myself? The opposite has now happened. In Britain, the people fighting hardest against the overweening censorship of free debate, of raising questions, of testing theories, of doubting the experts, are people on the right. And the people on the so-called left are cheering as the European Union, for example, passes a law which is now in place. Who knows? I might get cut off mid-sentence here. The spreading of disinformation as defined by them and nobody else with no recourse to any court in any land will lead to the social media companies being told to remove, to block, and to censor the points of view that the European Union decides are disinformation. Now, in the beginning, this was only about the election cycle virus. In the beginning, this was only about people questioning the veracity of the claims made by Big Pharma, very profitable claims made by Big Pharma. But be sure it has now moved on to other political issues. Now it's the war. Tomorrow, it will be something else. It will be immigration. It will be uh, asylum seekers. It will be open borders, anything will be defined by the European Union as disinformation. And the social media companies, however courageous or not courageous they might be, Elon Musk may be, Mark Zuckerberg, not at all courageous, but a gutless coward. And Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Britain, in charge of censorship. He was a Liberal Democrat when he was in Parliament. They'll decide what can go out about a war. So there's every possibility, at least within the European Union, that anything I say, never mind anyone else, my good friend Afsan Ratansi and Going Underground are uh, uh, just in the memory hole now for the European public. They can only be watched and heard. In the free world. Isn't that funny? We used to say we were the free world. Now we're the least free part of the world. And the day is coming. Might come tonight. Where anyone questioning the narrative of the prevailing orthodoxy on anything. But I'm most concerned about the war will be ruthlessly censored the social media companies will be fined millions of dollars for allowing access to their platforms to people with inconvenient views and arguments. That's bad, of course. It's bad in principle. It's the very antithesis of what being a Democrat is supposed to be. It's the very opposite of what the so-called left used to stand for, but it's much worse than that. It's not because it will put me out of a job. That's a mere bagatelle. It's because you, the public, will not be able to hear the Scott Ritters, the Colonel Douglas MacGregors, the Mark Berlittich. You'll not be able to hear the other point of view, and therefore, how can you possibly know that your government on your dime, in your name, is doing the right thing, is going in the right direction, if you haven't heard the alternative point of view. It is the so-called left in the United States that is fully behind the CIA, fully behind the FBI, fully behind uh, the military-industrial complex, the censorship industry, And fully behind the war. And such opposition as there is at the top level in US politics is coming from the right. That's what I meant by political cross dressing. And I'll be exploring it uh, with uh, the wonderful Neil Oliver, the ghost guy on Twitter, and a, a commentator on GB News, a historian of note, and a masterful. Storyteller, Let's hear what he has to say about these things tonight. But let me uh, move on to the Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak, or for American viewers, Rashid Sanuk, go figure, as Joe Biden uh, said. Mind you, Joe Biden this week said on television, live, uh, when thanking the man who just introduced him, Pete Buttigieg, he introduced them or referred to him rather, look away children, as Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is his Secretary of State for Transportation. The man was standing right next to him and didn't know where to look. But the uh, Rashid Sanook story has suddenly come back onto the agenda. It was imagined that Sanuk was going to manage the decline of the Conservative Party, mitigate the scale of its upcoming defeat in the British general election next year, before Christmas of next year. But the polls, the bottom, has fallen out of the Conservative Party. And one of the reasons for that, or one of the things that could have been done differently, which certainly would have mitigated it, would be for the leader of the Conservative Party to start acting like a conservative, to start acting in ways that some of his predecessors, and I was there when they did it, would not have flinched for a second in doing How can it be that in a Britain ruled by the Conservative Party for 13 years that I was able to read just yesterday in Britain a notice referring to, again, children, look away, people with vaginas, people with vaginas. They cannot bring themselves to say the word woman. They refuse to define what a woman is. They are enthralled by exactly the same mess of potage that is the gender-bending, gender-fixated, sexually obsessed center ground in British politics that I call blairism. They are in love with Tony Blair. They follow every word and anticipate every thought that emanates from Tony Blair's mind, which is social liberalism to its extreme, to the nth degree, combined with a laissez-faire attitude to economic and social problems in Britain. That is the least conservative thing I have ever seen. We still get lunatics on social media talking about how this Tory government is the most right-wing Tory government that has ever been. You people never lived through Margaret Thatcher, for God's sake. This is not a conservative government. This is a liberal government. With a small L. It's a liberal government in all but name. And it's the liberalism that's killing them after all. If you really want a liberal government, why would you want a conservative party at the head of it? If you really want thousands of people to cross the English Channel in rubber dinghies, Almost all of them men, almost all of them men of fighting age, who've lost their passports but managed to hold on to their mobile phones, to then be billeted in some of England's best three- and four-star hotels, why would you want a Conservative government to preside over it, if you really want? all of these liberal nostrums to be the prevailing orthodoxy in this country, why not give another liberal, Sir Keir Starmer, a chance? These are the issues that are going to do for Rishi Sunak. Because knowing the Conservative Party, as I do, once upon a time the most efficient political organization on the planet which ruthlessly dispatched its leaders, even its most revered leaders, with a knife in the back, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, knifed in the back, both of them. Then, if you're going to knife Margaret Thatcher, you're not going to balk at Rashid Sanuk. This man is a cipher. He is a nothing. He stands for nothing. And very shortly also, he has no bottom, he has no presence, he has no gravitas, he can't speak, he doesn't look right, there's something of the spiv about him. And it's not a very pleasant look. As I've said to you before, most conservatives in this country think we should still be ruling India. Not that an Indian should be ruling us. Moreover, an Indian on the make. An Indian who married a billionaire, S. And whose father in law, by the way, is still doing a roaring trade in both Russia and China when our companies are being stopped from doing any business with Russia and much business with China. Huawei out the door. Rishi Sunak's father-in-law's business doing a roaring trade in China. This man is so flimsy, so insubstantial. It is a wonder that it has taken so long. But it's now happening. There's something for viewers overseas called the 1922 Committee. Crazy name, crazy people. These are the men, overwhelmingly men, in gray suits. They are the men that go to one Tory leader after another once they have outlived their usefulness. And their usefulness is only measured, only, by whether or not the members of Parliament can hold their seats at the next election or whether they're going to have to go out and try and ply their trade elsewhere in an inhospitable market. The 1922 committee governs the business of the Conservative Party in Parliament in Britain. And if enough members of Parliament submit motions of no confidence, then automatically a new election contest is triggered. Now, I know there have been an awful lot of them, and it's quite hard to keep up. Somebody called Grant Shapps is now in charge of the war effort. Well, You know him as Grant Shapps, I know him as a Mr. Green, because our new war leader actually has multiple aliases and invents customer uh, comments, effusively praising the various businesses, failed businesses, that he was hitherto involved in, and he invented every single one of those quotes. So Mr. Green or Mr. Shapps is now in charge of the Charge of the Light Brigade, to which I shall return in a minute. But the Conservative Party will not sit by for very much longer and wait for Rashid Sanouk to ride them into the guns. These are not the gallant 600. There's nothing gallant about the Conservative Party in Parliament they can, are concerned only with their own individual prospects at the upcoming general election. So my view is that Rashid Sanuk is toast. And these letters, I'm told, are now coming in thick and fast. So expect a challenge to the leadership of the Conservative Party before the autumn leaves have stopped falling. Lastly, on the war, because I'm about to speak to Brian Belotick, who knows more about war than almost anybody anywhere in the media market. The charge of the gallant 600 into the guns at the Battle of Balaclava took place, in case you don't know it, in a place called Crimea. It was called the Crimean War. It was a precursor to the First World War and the levels of slaughter and carnage that were experienced in that war had never hitherto been seen in the history of warfare in the world. We may now be about to have another Crimean War because the increasingly exposed and corrupted regime in Kiev really only got one last shot. Their offensive, their counter-offensive has failed and failed and failed again. The game-changing equipment, material, weapons that were supposed to arrive and turn the tide have all failed miserably. Do you remember the Abrams tank, the Chieftain tanks, the F-16s, the depleted uranium bombs that the departing Ben Wallace bestowed on the people of Ukraine, none of these weapons has made a blind bit of difference. There's only one thing left, and that's to provoke a nuclear war. And that nuclear war will be provoked in any one of many circumstances, but the most significant of those circumstances is if NATO makes a serious effort on the ground to recapture Crimea. If they show the slightest sign of being in a position to conquer the Crimean Peninsula, then the world war is on. Because the Russians, that is an existential matter. And a tactical nuclear weapon, or two, or three, will be fired at the Ukrainian forces if they so much as seem to be ready to encroach on the Russian territory of Crimea. A new Crimean war, anyone? Well, let's see what Brian
2: Belatick thinks. He's coming up right after this. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
4: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom
0: worked for me.
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
1: Now here's our poll for tonight. Will there be a nuclear war? between the U.S. and Russia in the next year. Most of you appear oddly sanguine uh, about that. Uh, You can vote yes or no on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, on my X or on my Twitter, uh, on the YouTube community poll or on the YouTube stream. If you're watching us on the YouTube stream, please subscribe to my channel. Won't cost you a cent. Just press subscribe. Press the bell For notifications and the thumbs up if you are enjoying the show. So far, 27% of people say there will be 26, 29, and 26. So, a mean of around 27 or 28% of you think there will be. But uh, getting on for three quarters of you think there will be no nuclear war in the next year at least. 18,344 people have voted so far. Get your vote in before the end of the show. Brian Belatick is a former soldier, a man of immense strategic and uh, political intelligence. His new atlas is uh, indispensable in the world today as all the maps, the political maps at least, are being redrawn. He's a regular guest on the show and a very popular one at that. Brian Belitick, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. I I posed the question on the poll uh, because Tucker Carlson was very clear uh, that there will be a nuclear exchange uh, between Russia and the United States. I myself am equally persuaded that there will be. But as you may have just heard only about a quarter of the public think that that is a serious proposition you're a man who knows this game what's your view
0: maybe a lot of people are voting because they they don't even want to imagine that such a thing is possible and I think in Moscow and hopefully in Washington and in London, there are at least uh, some people who feel similar to that. They they do not want to see a nuclear exchange. They know it'll be catastrophic for everyone on all sides. Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal on earth. They're constantly upgrading it. They have uh, brand new intercontinental ballistic missiles that just came into service. They're preparing this because they do understand the, the gravity of the threats. This is a, a proxy war being waged against them by the U.S., by the rest of NATO. And, and they understand the the real danger that it poses to them. It is an existential threat to Russia. Uh, so they're taking it very seriously. Also, we, we, we see a history in the West of them being unable to accept defeat, being unable to reverse gear. Uh, but also now they're unable to succeed on the battlefield's proxy and, and directly. So it's a very, very dangerous situation. And I, I believe that there is a possibility. It, it, however small, there is a possibility. It only has to happen one time. There only has to be one miscalculation for this to go catastrophic.
1: Well, their uh, multi-warhead Sarmad uh, missile is now on duty, on active duty. Uh, This is uh, a rocket that, if fired from Kaliningrad, will destroy London, Birmingham, Manchester in Glasgow at least in an instant and will be here in around seven minutes uh, from Kaliningrad. And I'm sure that Americans and others... French people, German people uh, have an idea what their main targets would be at the hands of the same uh, rocket. The Russians are not deploying this for a laugh. They have not put this on active duty for a laugh because, Brian, you know this very well, when you're fighting a war thousands of miles away in somebody else's country, that's not an existential matter for you. But if you are fighting a war literally on your own doorstep and increasingly inside your own country, uh, that is an existential matter. And therefore, there are no holds barred. There wouldn't be for any nuclear-armed country threatened with destruction, dismemberment, and ruin, would there?
0: Absolutely. And I think the problem that we see is policymakers in Washington are so used to waging war so far abroad. And even this this proxy war they're waging against Russia and Ukraine, this for the West is not existential. This might be existential for the existence of NATO, but this is an organization that does not need to exist. It has not needed to exist for decades. And it's questionable whether it ever needed to exist. And so the stakes are completely different for the West as they are for, for Russia. And the West has a very bad habit, and they've done this uh, all throughout this confrontation with Russia before this current uh, conflict began and all throughout this current conflict, underestimating Russian resolve. They seem surprised that Russia went into Ukraine in the first place. They seem surprised that the defenses in the South, in Zaporozhye, are so formidable that Russian people are standing and fighting and defeating these NATO trained in arms Ukrainian forces that were supposed to roll right over uh, Russian defenses. So this is, this is a big problem when you have policymakers who have constantly underestimated Russia, who cannot seem to get into the head of uh, policymakers in Moscow and understand how serious it is to them from their point of view. This is, this is the making of a uh, An error in judgment, a miscalculation that could lead to something catastrophic
1: and many people uh, on the left and the right inside the military in diplomatic circles and out of it uh, have been warning uh, about this uh, for a, a very long time. These miscalculations surely began uh, with the with the uh, gorbachev uh, Bush senior. Uh, agreements and the assurances that were given to Gorbachev that if the then Soviet Union did not oppose uh, the coming down of the wall, uh, the reunification of Germany, uh, the withdrawal of Russian forces from Germany, uh, that uh, NATO would not expand one inch to the east. That was the word that Secretary James Baker actually said we know that because he wrote it in his own memoirs. They also completely failed to hear uh, Putin's uh, Munich speech in 2008, when again he spelt out all of the consequences that might flow from uh, the expansion of NATO and its inexorable drive uh, to the east. Are we led by fools or knaves, Brian? Brian?
0: Sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference. And this, that's absolutely true. That is a very good point. A lot of people should keep that in mind that NATO has constantly expanded east, even after the Cold War was over, even after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, this entire conflict in Ukraine is about NATO expansion eastward. And, and it goes beyond just mere expansion. It's the way that it is expanding. The West poses as if these nations chose to join NATO, when in reality these were regime change operations, the installation of a client regime that would then join NATO, even if it uh, contradicted that nation's best interests, which say in Ukraine's case is absolutely true. Georgia, the the government was overthrown in 2003, then the US and, and NATO armed it, and then Georgian forces attacked Russian forces in 2008 imagine that happening again in ukraine but on a much larger scale this is the threat that russia was reacting to the fact that people in washington seem surprised that russia took it so seriously that that is very scary and we wonder we have to wonder and i think we should be worried that they're going to make the same type of miscalculation this go through the same mental process when it comes to nuclear weapons. We we even see in the media, the Western media, uh, many many themes surrounding the, the idea that Russia, their red lines mean nothing, we don't have to worry about them, we can cross them, Russia won't do anything, but again, it only takes pushing that button one time, and and everything will be over.
1: Let me ask you a question, Brian, that tantalizes me, I, I alluded to it in my introduction. Where- we, when we hear from people like you, uh, military men uh, who've been on the inside, uh, Larry Johnson, Scott Ritter, Colonel McGregor, and so on, we hear a very different perspective uh, to that which the politicians in charge of the military, uh, at least nominally, uh, are the breeze that they are constantly shooting. Is there attention? Uh, between the people who actually have to do the fighting and dying until it becomes nuclear, in which case we all die and nobody fights. Uh, the, uh, I'm just wondering if you fellows are somehow an aberration or whether there exists inside the military intelligence, security apparatus, serious misgivings about the road that the politicians are taking us down.
0: I think, fortunately, that there are people uh, on the inside who understand all of this. After all, a lot of my analysis surrounding the, the conflict in Ukraine. We, you and I have talked before the offensive was ever launched, we talked about how it would be a failure. How did we know this? How did I know this? I was reading through the Western media and in between the propaganda, you do see the actual facts that all added up to, to this upcoming offensive being a catastrophic failure. And, and so that means that there are people there collecting actual facts and and they are in place the problem is that a lot of people who do understand how this all really works, they're not allowed to put that together into a report that says, no, the offensive is impossible. This whole project is impossible. You, you should stop now before you squander any more life or move us closer to nuclear annihilation. They're not allowed to do that for political reasons. And that that is the problem. There is a political agenda disconnected from reality. And I think the further forward that it goes, the further away from reality it gets. And that that is so dangerous, and especially because of this point you're bringing up tonight about the potential for nuclear conflict.
1: Now, uh, the the truth is uh, the commander in chief, not just of American forces, but effectively uh, all of America's allies, Uh, is uh, a a few um, sandwiches short of a picnic. Uh, He is unlikely to thrill the troops, and increasingly as he goes around the U.S., uh, he's greeted by a chorus of of abuse, some of it very uh, vulgar indeed. Uh, But the situation is still that if he gave the order, it would be carried out. Anybody feeling safer going to bed tonight that if Joe Biden orders uh, events that will ineluctably lead to a nuclear war, that everyone will carry out their duty? Salute and say, yes, sir.
0: Well, some people might suspect that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is not actually really in charge of anything. He's not even apparently in charge of his own faculties. But then does does that make it any better? Because then we don't actually know who really is in charge or who really would make that call. And it, it is a frightening prospect uh, if if the decision was made. I, I believe that people further down the chain of command would carry out their orders. That is how everything is set up to operate. Uh, they don't really have the ability to to question it or to protest it. And so what we have to really hope um, well, we we ourselves have to make noise about this, but what we have to hope is that there are people on the inside talking about this and trying to steer things away before it even comes to that that decision. The conflict in Ukraine has been a disaster for the West. Uh, I, I see some signs that seem to indicate that they are contemplating perhaps an exit ramp other than nuclear annihilation. So I, I mean, we, we have to hope because... Otherwise, there, there really is nothing that we can do if, if they press forward, and that is their ultimate determination is, is nuclear annihilation.
1: Brian, it's the middle of the night in Thailand. You have a family uh, that you adore, and you've stayed up till this hour to further educate the mother of all talk shows and its international audience. I'm much obliged to you, sir. Thank you, and good night. Brian Berlitek, as always. Great uh, guest coming up, a legend, Erobos, in New York on nuclear war. Erobos, welcome back to the show. What would you like to say?
3: Thank you very much, Mr. Galloway. A salubrious night and a warm greetings and hospital welcome from West Harlem, New York to you, your family, the fans, your loved ones, and of course, the beautiful Gayatri and your family. Um, what you mentioned, uh, I, I missed the monologue. I had a I had a late start to today. I missed most of your monologue. However, what you said with Brian Berletic there, uh, Brian in Bangkok, about people not believing. This is a this is a conversation I had with Garland Nixon when we did Rage Against the the War Machine, which was you know the People's Party with the Libertarians and and um, our, our allies like this. And this is the key, you know, it struck a chord with me when you said that, because this is the key why the turnout for these events are not like, um, you know, the Central Park event or like the event you did uh, 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago now, uh, which would be, you know, the anti-Iraq invasion uh, in New York in the 80s, they had about a million people in Central Park. And but the the generation of people then seemed to remember the the threat, the actual threat. And I think you know the, the whole thing, even though it was performative, of diving under the school table, the school desk, you know, as children, uh, it sort of stood in the mind. It it, it inculcated in the mind. And would also um, go into why there's so much resistance. From the liberals and from the liberal uh, sympathizers, these people, you know, are head full of guano and, you know, they're very parochial and petty because they genuinely do not believe that a nuclear war can happen. It's beyond the scope of their imagination. They don't even, they, they can't even fathom what a nuclear war is or what it would do, even though the Oppenheimer film but you know it's it's all over the place it's all over the world to them that's just entertainment and that's a core problem that's a fundamental issue you know like i said it moved something in me when when you brought that up with uh with, with Brian Ballettin because it it puts the hammer right on the nail the precise point of why we get so much resistance you know we did the humanity for peace rally with the um the Larouche Schiller Institute uh, well, it was, it was their thing, and, and Scott Ritter and everybody came out right across the street, um, Dam Hammerstag Plaza across the street from the U.N. here in New York. And it was the same thing, right? It was a small group of people, and then, you know, you had the PSYOP, the PSYOP agents coming out and trying to disrupt the thing. But it, these people fundamentally, and at risk of being redundant because it is important, they, they at their core... They think that they're going to continue on with their careers, with their life, and they fundamentally don't believe that a nuclear war is going to happen. And you know, I'm in, and of course I'm I'm in the boat with you. I do not want a nuclear war for them for them to be convinced by this action. You know, there's a meme, and I'm just going to finish with this. There's a meme where there there are two. Um, two, what do they call them, nondescript players. I'm not a gamer, but there's a term for, um, for like, nondescript people in the game. And two of them are there, and there's a mushroom cloud behind them. And they said, well, and one says, well, at least I'm fully vaxxed. And the other one says, well, at least Trump is not in power, so it's not that bad. You know, and this... This is the mentality of these people, you know? So I, I just yeah. wanted to share that. I wanted to thank you again for having well, you did. A, a political home for people to go to, a political home for people to go to and express not just their vote, but their desire to change the country by fighting the establishment. Without a political home, is just talk, analysis, paralysis, retweets, subs, subscriptions, and all that foolishness. Everybody's going to be dead with a nuclear war. So thank you again, and thank the Workers' Party of Great Britain, and forward and onward we shall go. Thank you very much.
1: God bless you, Erobos, the legend in New York. Just remember that sentence he just said. Everybody's going to be dead if there is a nuclear
2: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. One man with a
1: very substantial audience of his own, some of which overlaps, but not all. And perhaps at the end of this interview, both of our audiences will have increased as a result. Neil Oliver is a historian. He is a man with a great feel for the Natural world, for the beauty, particularly of this island, Uh, but he has increasingly become embroiled in politics. How can one not, when so much of what was once treasurable in this country, at least, and in others, has been taken from us, has either withered on the vine or has been torn from our grasp? We both. Remember a better Britain. And both of us hope that it's not too late to save the Britain that we loved. He is Neil Oliver. Neil, thanks uh, very much for coming on the Mother of All talk shows. Let me uh, start with that point. Um, Britain is facing enormous challenges. Leave the existential ones of world war aside for the moment. There's the scourge of separatism that seeks to break up uh, a small island into several new states. There's the collapse in the credibility of our institutions and in our government. I mean, I think if you took a microphone out onto the street and asked people how many of them respected the politicians that are in power now, or for that matter, the politicians that are likely to replace them, the number of affirmatives would be vanishingly few. Uh, and there's, I'm not in Britain at the moment, you are. Uh, but viewed from where I am, Britain's in serious trouble. Do you think so?
5: I do, uh, George, and, and thanks for making time for me this evening. Uh, you know, you and I have spoken together uh, you know, privately, and, uh, and we have found common ground, uh, and and some of it is the belief that the the Britain in which we both grew up uh, has gone. Uh, I I have been a lifelong lover of of the British Isles, uh, and, and and I suppose to some extent for me it began with a love of landscape and a love of the history and the and the archaeology. I'm you know, if, if I'm anything, I'm an archaeologist and I uh, you know, I grew up with that I was imbued with that from, from my parents and I, I, more recently I've written about uh, the British Isles and I have written about and all of my love of the British Isles but in many ways in recent years I've been writing a eulogy for a place that I think no longer exists uh, which is a great sadness to me uh, but I think in, in, uh, in writing that eulogy and in, in speaking about the extent to which I think that, that what I have loved and do love, uh, has been eroded, I think there's still time. And I think that the, the vast majority of the people to whom I speak and who come up to me in the street every day, uh, you know, and, and, and say hello and shake hands and, and want to make the point that, that we're on this, that we're all on the same road. Uh, I, I, I suppose, although I'm despondent at times, I have great faith that the the people uh, are, are still absolutely committed to the to the Britain of of my memory. Uh, and I think, you know, people like yourself, people like me, and and millions besides, we hold it close, we hold it dear, and we will, you know, there's every possibility uh, that we can we can we can resuscitate that which has been and and should go on.
1: Well, not with the current crew. Uh, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, is not the man to save Britain. God knows how the Conservative Party ended up with him. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the Joe Biden situation in the in the US. You scratch your head and say, how can that be the best that the British political class can produce? Uh, now I was postulating earlier that he he may not be that much longer for 10 Downing Street, though heaven knows uh, where they're going to find someone uh, to replace him uh, that will make things any better. We do have a parlous political class, don't we?
5: No one needs to hear me say this about you. You know, you have been in, you have been in the political uh, arena for you know for as long as I can remember. Although I know that you know you're not you haven't been an, an uh, you know an active politician for the last you know number of years, but in my in my sense you are a political man, and and I've said it before and I'll happily say it again that to me you are the last Labour politician standing, whether or not you have a seat uh, that, that's irrelevant. You know to me you are you embody what I have always understood to be uh, the the Labour Party. Now that that said, you know, you being the last labour man standing, the rest of the political uh sphere has been hollowed out my my eulogy that to to Britain is in part because of my awareness that there's nobody left that speaks for the left for the rights for the for the centre that that has all gone, and that that space. In, in ways that I, I struggle to understand, far less to articulate, has been uh, has been co-opted by a zombie, parasitic ideology. That I, I'm almost loath to use the word ideology because an ideology would suggest that it stands for something. It stands for nothing. It's there to facilitate. I don't know the asset stripping of this great country. It's there to facilitate the asset stripping of the West. It's there to impoverish people rather than raise them up. It's there to, it's there to, uh, to, uh, uh, to play, to play, to make the case for those who seek to profit from our demise you know and i uh, 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 rishi sunak you mentioned grant sharps as defence uh, secretary it's an absolute nonsense i don't think anybody i don't think anybody in britain believes that rishi sunak runs britain nobody believes that not even his colleagues uh, Sadiq Khan, Mayor of London, I think people looking on at him can see what it is that he's about, which is seeking division, uh, you know, s- sowing uh, racial hatred, sowing uh, uh, d- uh, division. Uh, w- w- the people, the people of this country, the people of this country are crying out for something to believe in. Or I, I might put that better. The people of this country do believe in something. They believe in what they have always believed in, which is family, which is tradition, which is the culture of these islands. They want to see those protected and celebrated. But instead, what they're confronted with are people who stand for nothing. And it does beg the question who will, who will come forward and stand for something? And because I ask myself that question all the time, I I tend to believe that the political uh, environment, the political arena is so corrupted, so toxic, that I don't think the solutions that we need will come from the world of politics. Now, having said that, I don't know from which world the necessary solutions will come But all that I draw on all of the time is the faith that I have, based on the continual contact that I have with the people of this country, day by day, week by week, and month by month, which reassures me that the people, the people of this country, still believe in what they've always believed in: family, you know, education for their children, safety for their for their for their for their uh, their offspring. Those things remain constant, and I remain, I remain, I remain. Uh, optimistic that that is what will carry us through where we are now.
1: There's a big conspiracy against the emergence of any possibility of another way. The prevailing orthodoxy is a very powerful dictatorship. As Dr Johnson said long ago, uh, the, the, if people are told that there is no alternative, and if even social media is increasingly closed down as a method by which people can learn of alternative ways forward, uh, it's a rather bleak prospect. Uh, I don't think uh, it's not in my nature to be a pessimist, but neither uh, is a foolish optimism doing anyone any service.
5: George, you know, I, I, I don't think I would be, you know, giving anything away by saying that uh, you, you, ten years ago or twenty years ago or whatever, uh, you and I might not have, uh, you know, uh, seen ourselves as uh, as as sharing the same point of view. You know, I've never considered myself to to be a particularly political animal. You have. I have watched you and been aware of you for you know for decades, and and, you, and for a lot of the time, you know, disagreed with 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 some of what you were saying. But but and this is the important point: through it all, you have adhered to certain fundamental values about family, about faith, about tradition, about the uh, about the rights of uh, men and women, about equality, about the right to a life the right to an honourable life. And that has distilled down to the point where I have realised and and come to accept that, you know, where I might have not realised it for the longest time, that we are, we are sympatical in a great deal. And I think that that, that right there is the cause for optimism. I think that so much has gone wrong in the, in the bigger picture. We've been set, we've been fed so much nonsense that nobody believes in that those of us who continue to adhere to the fundamental values have seen through the mist of it, the fog of it, and have found one another so that, you know, two, two men like you and I that might previously have felt quite separated by all sorts of ideology have realized that in the in this fog of war, in this nonsense that's all around us, you and I, and many people, most people around us, understand that we are united by a common cause. And I, I'm aware of repeating myself in, in what I've said over the last 10 minutes or so of this conversation, but it, it's, it's of fundamental importance. And it is the reason for optimism. Mm. All this nonsense that's out there about transgenderism and about climate crisis and all of the, you know, the and the wildfires in Greece and the wildfires in Maui that, and the forever war in Ukraine that we're being fed—that's to distract us. So many people have seen through it or are gradually coming to see through it and realizing that what we want is what people all over the world always want, which is peace, which is the peace to get on with our lives. Which is the knowledge that we can get along with one another, that we are tolerant without being told to be tolerant, that there's a great cause for optimism about that commonality that we have and that, you know, that that you and I, you know, you and I talk off camera, you know, we talk, you know, we talk privately and we, we have come to understand that we are, we are simpatico and that we share a lot of the same opinions. And that is, that is of fundamental importance and is a reason for optimism.
1: Amen. Uh, the, uh, it would be a good reason to rejoice that we had left the European Union if Britain was not going to go down the road. The European Union has embarked on this very week uh, of a dramatic ratcheting up of the tools of censorship uh, in media, uh, the so-called disinformation game. Uh, I'd be happy that, well, we don't have to go down that road because we voted to leave the European Union, except our government is even more keen on censorship uh, uh, than the European Union. It may very well be that this conversation we are having now will no longer be possible, uh, at least on any kind of platform that can reach significant numbers of people, And quite soon, that's one of the, if not the uh, most important challenges, isn't it? Because the reason it's the First Amendment in the United States is because it's the most important one. If you don't have free speech, you don't have any freedoms at all. Everybody knows this.
5: This is one of those fundamentals. When When anyone talks about freedom of speech... It runs through everyone. It's like a, it's like, it's like lightning, you know, through a lightning conductor. We're all energised by the threat to the f- to the freedom to talk, and and any thinking person understands without having to be told that the threat of not being able to share ideas, to debate, to argue, uh, to uh, to find common ground. Any threat to that fundamental function of the human animal, we all fear it and we will all rebel against it. I think it's a, it's a strange irony that the, the internet was, you know, was conjured into being in the 1960s and it enabled and it has enabled millions, billions of people to talk to one another. That was a collateral benefit. You know, that wasn't why the internet was built. You know, the internet was built so that the US military could maintain connections between its computers. The, the fact that it enabled millions of people around the world to find one another and to share ideas was a, was a, an unexpected a collateral benefit for all of us. And it's because of that, it's because of that that it's now being censored and moves are being made to, to shut it down. Because the greatest threat to tyranny, you know, to, to authoritarianism, to totalitarianism is the ability for all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life to come together and have conversations, the like of which you and I are having now. And my, my optimism about the, the power of the human spirit is such that even, even if, even if this even if censorship means that you and I can't communicate but by these means, by which we're communicating now, we would find another way. You know, I've been saying privately and publicly for a while now that I think the future is analogue. You know, we've all become very dependent on this wonderful ability that we have to communicate via you know, digital technology. But people will always find ways to converse and to communicate and if if, they, if the if though if the powers that be if the if the totalitarians out there go so far as to as to shut us down and to seek to make these kinds of conversations impossible, then the likes of you and me and millions of others like us will find another way. you know we will not be silenced these conversations that have been, you know, conjured into being an inspired, they're going, on, they're going on all around the place all of the time, and they will keep going because we, as a, as a species, as, a, as, as the human race, we understand that it's by remaining in contact with one another that we will prevail and that we will find the solutions to the problems that we have.
1: Amen. Well, while people still can, they should follow The course Guy on Twitter and watch Neil Oliver's show on GB News. It's been a pleasure to speak to you on screen rather than our behind-the-screen discussions over uh, months and years. Thank you, Neil Oliver, very much. Bless you, George Galloway. Will there be... Thank you. Will there be a nuclear war between the US and Russia in the next year? Magnus is on the line in the West Midlands. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Magnus.
6: Hello, George. Uh, Great to talk to you. Um, I, I, I'm basically going to say, uh, like a variation of the point. It's this, mate. I'm of an age when I'm old enough to remember when the Soviet Union, uh, like, was dissolved. And my impression very much showed that there was a massive loss of heart in the left across the world because that symbol of an alternative had been, uh, like, had been removed. Now. <clears throat> With the rise of Africa right now, or the the anti colonial sentiments uh, on the march, very much so. The population of Africa knew that they were getting shafted all the way through, but there was just nothing anyone could do about it. Obviously, they were tied up under the uh, IMF, but you've got the bullying, the bullying of America, uh, like of, of all of those countries, and there was nothing that they could do about it. So, with Russia standing up and standing so proud against uh, the american hegemony what this has done is it's just lit a fire to all of those like in the, in the playground when you're getting bullied in the playground there's nothing you can do about it but if a new kid comes along and that bully now has got something to worry about you can go you know what i've had enough of giving you my dinner money i'm going to go and stand in that side of the park like at a park now and i'm going to get uh like cause i've got someone who's going to stand and fight with me and i was just uh, interested in your thoughts on that george
1: well, uh, that's a very beautiful call, uh, Magnus. Uh, the call of the night, I think. Uh, the, the biggest change uh, has been the emergence of China as the world's number one manufacturer and soon uh, the world's number one economy. The second biggest change is that uh, Putin has picked Russia up off the floor where it was lying drunk, having its pocket picked under the drunkard uh, Yeltsin, and has put Russia back on its feet, dusted it down, and made it strong and much healthier uh, in every way. Uh, And that's, of course, why they hate Putin. If he was a drunken fool like Yeltsin, uh, or uh, just a fool, Uh, like Gorbachev, uh, they would have been fine uh, doing business with him. But he's uh, neither a drunkard nor a fool. Uh, And he has picked Russia up and restored its prestige uh, to uh, levels not seen since uh, 1945. Uh, And that's very important. Suddenly you've got not one new guy arriving in the school who's going to challenge the bully, but two new guys that are ready to say to the bully, your days of bullying everyone are over. And you'll have to face uh, not one of us uh, using one against the other. You're going to have to face both of us at the very same time because our relationship now, Russia and China, is beyond friendship. It's beyond allies as both leaders have frequently said, they are one fist. And anyone who comes to uh, weaken, dismember, destroy them, will have to face both of them together. And they say that knowing that no one can face both of them together. The European Union would collapse overnight if China alone uh, were to stop sending us the wherewithal that, all of our economies are completely depend on. You know that the European Union bought more Russian oil this year than last? You know that the European Union bought 230% more Russian fertilizer than they did last year? You know that the United States has imported five times more Russian uranium in the last year than they did the year before. None of these economies could survive the total and irreversible breach in relations with both China and Russia. Indeed, if China were to dump uh, the United States debt, which it could very well do, and, and live to tell the tale, the United States of America and its currency The dollar would be no more. So it is, in a way, a race against time, Magnus. That's the cause of urgency, because maybe they want to blow everything up before they have lost their dominance, their domination, which, don't forget, they have enjoyed for, I don't know, 300 years maybe, Maybe more, three to four hundred years of domination of the European and then the European and North American and now the North American with the European as satraps. Uh, empire. That's a very long time to be the top dog. That's a very long time to be the school bully. And now you have to confront uh, these two new kids in the playground who won't let you steal everybody's dinner money anymore. And, in fact, may very well extract from your pocket some recompense for all the crimes that you have uh, committed before. Thanks for giving me the chance, Magnus, to get that off my chest. But I need to clear the decks because there's another legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Welcome.
4: Hello George Um, it's back to the UK now Um, I missed the beginning of your show, I'm sorry about that Um, but I wanted to actually point out something it's a bit of a worry because I'm phoning because it might affect other elderly people and my husband is still in hospital he's still unwell but when he comes home and he's got very lack of mobility and he needs an awful lot of care it might get very complicated now if there were good care or nursing homes and you didn't have to worry about affording them life would be so much less of a worry I couldn't afford to pay the money that needs for for my husband I don't want him to go into a care or nursing home and stay in this house and uh I think it's sad really that it's come to this. Do you know what I mean?
1: I do know what you mean. It's very sad indeed. Uh long, long ago, uh this so-called social care uh should have been a part of uh of the National Health Service, uh which we were told and we paid for as being a service that would be available from the cradle to the grave, uh, well, by the grace of God, neither you nor your husband are in the grave, Uh, but you uh, will certainly not be cared for in the twilight uh, of your years unless you are prepared to financially ruin yourself. Now, the whole case for a national health and care service uh, is not something... I have the time left in the show to develop, though my party, the Workers' Party of Britain, is very strong on this. And as part of it, we demand the public ownership of the pharmaceutical industry because how can you have a national health service that is held hostage by big pharma that can charge the national health service a captive market any amount of money that they like uh, for the products which uh, will be necessary as part of that national health and care service. I hope it doesn't come to that, Norma. I hope that that your husband comes home and Mm -hmm. that uh, the public sector Mm -hmm. and your own children uh, can somehow find a way uh, to keep uh, both of you together uh, at home. Last word to you, Norma.
4: Well, it's just that um, I, I'm not. I'm, fra- I'm getting very frail, George. I'm only six and a half stone. and the thing is, I can't care for him because I can, but I can't do all the things. And if he can't walk, it's just diabolical. And he's got so much other things wrong with him. You'd be surprised. But um. I'm thinking, well, maybe he'll have to go somewhere nice. But I can't afford it because I've got I can't stay in this house and afford a thousand pounds a week or something for a good nursing home. No. You know?
1: A thousand pounds a week. Norma, in Bristol, you will have I know the heartfelt best wishes of every viewer of the mother of all talk shows. That's the end of the show. Indeed, it's almost three minutes. Beyond the end of the show, 21,328 people voted in the poll uh, in the end. It's the end of this show, but not of the mother of all talk shows. As long as God gives me breath and as long as the internet police uh, do not uh, interrupt normal service. I'll be back again on Wednesday evening at the slightly later time of 9pm UK time. So uh, do uh, spread the word so that the audience grows to such a size that it becomes a major and important factor in the making up of people's minds on the great issues of the day here and there and everywhere. Good night.